Hello, everybody. It is once again time to sing the praises of Fangoria. This classic magazine has been at it for over 40 years, and it is back and better than ever. The highly collectible publication comes right to your door four times a year, and each issue of Fangoria is filled to the brim with articles exploring every nook and cranny of genre filmmaking, past, present, and future, with all of the most exciting journalists, filmmakers, and horror know-it-alls to guide the way, including your intrepid KingCast hosts, I might add. Mm-hmm. This high-quality writing will only ever appear within the physical pages of the magazine, so if you want to join in on the fun, you will need to subscribe. And to do that, all you have to do is head on over to Fangoria.com and, well, sign up. And since KingCast listeners are in the family, all you have to do is enter in the promo code KingCast at checkout to save a whopping 25% off your entire order. And with all of that said, on with the show. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Bad love! Bad love! Girl! You guys wanna go see a dead body? Well, sometimes, that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are hosts. Today's guest has one of the more um, confusing resumes I have ever needed to explain during an intro on the King cast. He is the producer behind a string of reality TV competitions, the creator of HBO Max's F-Boy Island, a writer on Mike Flanagan's Midnight Mass, proud owner of a cameo in James Gunn's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, and the exec producer behind Teresa Sutherland's upcoming Lovely, Dark, and Deep. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Elon Gale. Elon, how are you doing today? That was exciting to hear all that at the same time. Was it? Uh, well, it's, it's just a, weird. It's, a it's so weird. Portfolio, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. No, I haven't done. I, uh, I haven't talked to strangers in forever, so this mm. is really exciting. <laughs> you, I feel like I know you from the internet, but mm. I just yes. haven't interacted with strangers, and I'm really excited about that today. I was gonna say, our parents told us not to do what we're doing right now. Just well, talking to know, they the said a lot of Twitter. things. They said a lot of things. Yeah. And they didn't know about Twitter when they were saying that, you know, no. so they didn't know shit. Yeah. Anyway. yeah. If you, if you meet strange people on Twitter, kids, it's totally cool. It's definitely yeah. safe. You want to foster those kind of relationships. I'm not, I'm actually not sure how, uh, Alon, how you and I came to be on each other's radars, but it was well before you were it's working with time. Mike. And yeah. It, but it was like, I remember at one point, because you have like some astronomical number of followers or something, don't you? And like I'm, we interacted a few blessed. times. I'm like, well, he's somebody, but I don't know who he is. <laughs> and and like I could have just Googled it right then and there and ended the mystery. But I was like, no, I'm going to leave it and see if I can piece it together over time. And I'm going to tell you, I never did. And eventually had to like look it up <laughs> like about a year later. <laughs> Uh, I just, I just, I love horror movies, so I just follow people that write about them and talk about them, and um, and also I think have a have a, a pithy, light, fun, interactive way of being a quote very <laughs> quote online unquote. Yes. and uh, and you're just a, you're just a pleasure. I you know again, you know, I, all I knew is you had the the little um, the creature avatar, yeah. mm-hmm. and I thought that was adorable. So oh. why wouldn't I want to look at that? Yes, of course. People need more creature from the Black Lagoon in their feet. Yeah, but this That's is our right. first time talking. 
It is. Probably, it's, I've yeah. seen your words in my hand in different ways for four years now. So it's a, it's a page you ripped out of my diary and such. The next I, level. Yeah. yeah, of course. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm delighted to be talking to you after all this time. And also, I, I think that we should talk a little bit about the work you've done with Mike because, you know, he's a, he's sort of a cornerstone of this podcast and him, the, him, Kate, Rahul have all come on the show. It's yeah. uh, a very Flanagan family uh, sort of show. So I'm delighted mean, to have yeah. another member of that family here is what I'm saying. I, I think of myself as like an adopted cousin in the Flanagan family, like just, just kind of there um, around. Um, but no, he's obviously one of the most uh, incredible <laughs> writers I've ever seen or met in my life and, and director and, and watching mm-hmm. him work and learning from him, honestly, like I've, it's one of the most intimidating and wonderful experiences all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is really, which is really cool. You know, like there's something really cool about being around people who you go, holy shit, how did your brain do that? I wish mm-hmm. my brain could do that. Maybe one day my brain will do right. things like that. That's exciting. It's, you know, it's if I was an athlete and I saw an athlete who was really good, I would be like, yeah, that's cool. And it's a similar here. Yeah, no, well, I think for it's more unfair. that analogy, but it wasn't. It, it, it <laughs> just fell off a cliff. You're 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 very close, very close. Um, it's very it's very early. Just to say that. Yes, that's just fine. to say that. Let's all acknowledge um, it. It's also sort of uh, unfair. <laughs> I would submit it is. That, it is that, that so much talent would be packaged into you know one man. But no, it's true. Watching him uh, just speak kind of extemporaneously about stories he's writing or things he wants to work on. It's, uh, it's lyrical and it's, it's, I know this sounds like effusive praise that feels almost borderline obsessive, but it's really, it's astonishing to watch and it's crazy to see. And then to see something like Midnight Mass that he talked about for a long time, just become the more beautiful version of the thing you could have possibly imagined having listened to this person spin this tale. It's, you know, and even being in the writer's room and then seeing what he was able to do with the performers and how, you know, Hamish and Zach and of course Kate, like, and Raul, like how they took on those roles and then added to them with Mike. It's, it's really like, it's, 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 it's the closest thing I've seen to alchemy in real life. And that sounds like super, you know, I know, I know what it sounds like, but it's really, it's kind of, in, as you said, infuriating in its beauty. In its beauty, right. you know, it's, it's, you know, it really makes you both want to try way harder and quit all at the same time. Hmm. <laughs> I'm really curious about your experience in the writers' room because, especially on something like Midnight Mass, because that feels so thoroughly one perspective that entire run, and obviously not one person makes makes a show even under the best near you know the most uh, dictatorship of circumstances i guess um but for that one specifically you you know it does kind of feel one voice throughout which which is yeah. very uh it's fascinating to me you know knowing that that he had you know talented writers as well you know um uh, uh working on that with him so maybe you can talk to to that and yeah that that voice is is singular throughout <laughs> Sure. Well, I think from the from the moment that I first heard about Midnight Mass from Mike and getting into it, it was really clear. And he's done a bunch of, I'm sure he talked to you guys about this at some point, but there's, there's a, it's a personal story. 
It's a story that mm-hmm. that means a lot to him. It's a story he's been working on for a really long time. And so for me, that's intimidating because I I feel like my job in a situation like that is actually to just kind of get out of the way and remove my point of view personally. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, you know, the first thing I did uh, was I, you know, I, I was raised Jewish, but like super secular, more traditional. Like we did the songs and we ate the flatbreads, but we didn't really get too deep into it. Right. Um, but so, you know, I went and I spent three months just reading the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, because I wanted to be able to have a little bit of the language. You know, and now you're a convert. It changed everything for me. Um, I'm completely obsessed with it. it actually, it was a, I learned a lot because I had never read the Bible end to end before. Um, Old and New Testament, and it was really quite an experience of you know a lot of things that I never had heard about before in there, some wacky and interesting stuff. And so for me, the process was really just about like more than anything, trying to gain a deeper understanding of what Mike was trying to say with each of the characters he had created, with each of the scenes that he had devised, and and then try to simply put a lot of the the kind of the, the the muscle and the tissue in place around this kind of beautiful skeleton that he had already completely created in my opinion uh, and then he was obviously he's a he's an unbelievable collaborator and like an amazing boss and so there was never a sense of like no no he never said to do it his way if that makes any sense like that was never a, there was never a sense of like oh this is no this is my story it was always a very collaborative effort but I just felt because of our backgrounds, just him and I, I'll speak for, for me, um, I didn't have anything to add when it came to the feelings. I just tried to help find the right language and hmm. to help, help construct scenes, uh, especially in the early stages, that would help elucidate the kind of things that Mike was really trying to say. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I, truly like a shepherd of his vision, <laughs> Mm-hmm. More than and, and, and who, who the fuck am I? You know, what right. I mean? that's the, that's the good thing about imposter syndrome and just ha- and just generally like really not liking yourself a lot is it's really easy to be like you know what my opinion it's not I'm cool not not having that right now I'm okay with that like and especially as it was my first real writer's room right um, you know there I was and just real i it was it was a class for me simultaneously um i spent a lot of time writing uh many many years ago and and many many years in between and blah 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 but it's a it's a very specific kind of storytelling that he does and just just try not to ruin it with this kind of (laughs) the way that i view my job it's funny you talking about that is the same way mike talks about adapting stephen king stuff you Mm. know it's like Whereas like, you know, wanting to kind of, obviously it's going to have to go through his lens at a certain point, but ultimately it's, it's about, uh, you know, being true to the original voice that, that he is so respectful of. So I don't know. It's a weird, uh, what do you call this? The Russian nesting doll effect. It feels like, you know, I think when you have the wherewithal to know what's around you and I'm, and you're not blinded by whatever nonsense you tell yourself to feel okay. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it gets a lot easier to actually just kind of stand in awe of something 
and try to assist and be a part of it than it is to put your own stamp on something that really uh, doesn't need your stamp. I think every room is different. I think every creative process is different. That's just here. It felt so much like this was Mike's story. How do we help him? And the truth is, I'm not sure he needs the help. And in some ways, it's almost an act of amazing courtesy and charity to allow <laughs> people to come along for the ride. And Yeah, uh, but know. get that money, man. Get that money. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would be, well, everyone has a first day on the job, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think I would be crazily intimidated to be in a writer's room for the first time. Mm. You know? Yeah. I would, I it, would feel I, like. Yeah, I was. I was. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously you, you did great work, but is there a sense of like, I don't, I shouldn't be at this table, like that imposter syndrome that you're talking about, you know? Oh, I, I mean, 100%. It's, and I know it's something that I don't know if people like hearing about this kind of stuff or not, but um, I've never been particularly confident in, in the, in the work that I do. And uh, especially something where I'm, you know, I worked in unscripted television and still do for, you know, nearly two decades. So there I really feel like, okay, I can sit, I can sit at this table and I can talk about things and I'm not going to know everything and I'm going to get a lot of things wrong, but at least I, I have enough experience to draw from, to speak with like some confidence about some things. Um, and then you step into a room like that and you just go, oh my God, like where, <laughs> what have I where done? am I? And it's such an interesting thing too, because if you think about the world of unscripted where I was raised and then the world of like, you know, like incredible storytelling and, and scripted narrative television, uh, you go, oh, so you can go backwards. And that's the thing that is so different is that like decisions made and unscripted are irreversible. Hmm. Whereas in scripted, there is A-B testing. You can walk down a path. You can go down an avenue and see how it feels. And that simultaneously opens up an unbelievable world of creativity. But A, I'm not sure my brain was fully ready to know that number of options. <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah. because then the choice paralysis starts setting in. Oh, and man. You, like, yeah. you can literally you know, do anything anything yep. can happen and you know i just sat i sit there with my hands on the keyboard giving like every word i choose is the is the dismissal of every other word in this moment <laughs> i can yep. make every every decision is 8 billion decisions made in the negative simultaneously <laughs> And that's a lot of fucking saying no to, and i know that's but like, this is what i go through and that's right. why the whole process of everything is like just kind of like terror and anxiety and pain um, and exciting and thrilling, if that makes any sense. You, you wonder aloud if, you know, uh, people want to hear about this stuff. I, I always find this shit fascinating. It's, a, it's always a good story when someone's like coming into a thing for the first time and then they kick its fucking ass. You know, well, and then I, you're like, well, tell me about it from the top, <laughs> you know, like it's that's always going to be a good story. And the thing is, is that in a writer's room, in my experience so far, you have a wide variety of experiences and not just in not just work experiences, obviously, but life experiences. Yeah. And yeah. and so many people, I think, are often collected so that they can offer different points of views. And that's really, really 
important and simultaneously, you know, navigating the waters of a bunch of people with different starting points, trying to reach the same end point. Um, it's a, it's a fascinating kind of like social, <laughs> you know, it's right. like a cocktail party where you're trying to, you're trying to surprise someone for their birthday at the end of the night. Mm. And everyone has a different plan for how to get them there to the door at midnight. And, <laughs> and he's probably walking down the street and his phone saying, hey, meet us here. And then he gets a call and someone says, meet me there. And you're just trying to get to the same location, but no one started in the same place and everyone has a different way of getting, getting around. Um, you can see that analogies are not really, not really where I shine. Um, <laughs> I follow. I follow. Nor yeah, you're, you're are nor, nor are my monologues really up to up to snuff. <laughs> well, if you're, you're making sense mics, so far, but can you bring it in for a landing? I think that's bring what it we're, in for a landing. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the day, the person's going to walk into the room, and you just hope you can scream "Happy Birthday" at the same time. Nailed and, it. Is that good? Yeah, that that perfectly tracks. <laughs> So well this done. isn't the opposite of writing in a writer's room because <laughs> there's no A-B testing. I, if no. I could go back, I would have undone how I started a lot of things. Well, for all the listeners, that's, we did seven versions life. of that. And this is the one we landed on? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. That was the best one, folks. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> you, the, the bad ones were really rough. Yeah, we don't Real need to rough. talk about those. No, we don't make eye contact <laughs> with those. Let's not do that. <laughs> well, let's talk about your Stephen King origin story. Like, yeah, when you were growing up, when when did you first become aware of King? Um, I went to a birthday party. Speaking of, just to really bring that one back, uh, I went to a birthday party, and uh, someone at the birthday party put on "Children of the Corn" two. Yes, uh, which I know is you know uh, off, slightly off, but. I was not raised uh, watching movies or TV, really. Um, like period. So we 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 were allowed to watch growing up. I was allowed to watch primarily only uh, opera in foreign languages on VHS or Betamax. Um, we know kids <laughs> love that opera. There were, you know, you know, the Pagliacci at least has some has some really fun moments, but. Uh, that's, that's, Little Elon uh, loved a good Pagliacci. That, that, that's what that's what we watched uh, in my house, and so I didn't have a lot of experience uh, with with really much of, of uh, pop culture. I guess horror movies would never make it in, and so Children of the Corn two. And there's a scene, and I hadn't seen Children of the Corn one, uh, so I had no idea what was going on. And um, there's a scene where a corn stalk flies through the air and goes through the throat of somebody. Oh, yes. Spoiler spoiler alert. And that um and that kills them and blood comes out of their neck. And I started fucking sobbing. Really? Uh, yeah. How old are you again? I, never, I I don't know. I was probably like a twelve. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like I had never seen I was twenty seven. Uh, yeah, this was uh this was in January. I had really just never seen anything like it, and I had to be picked up, and I was unwell. I was really, really unwell. It really fucked with me, and and just to say that that is a uh, 
a recurring thing up till now in my life, which is maybe I'm terrified by all of these things. Like in real life, none of I none of it loses any of the real actual terror and drama for me. Like when I was working on on Mass with Mike, like I can't write alone at night. It's I, even thinking about the things is too hmm. terrifying for me. I'm legitimately afraid of the dark and as an adult and is in as much as one can be like, that's interesting. Yeah. Like none, none of it's like funny to me. (laughs) Like I legitimately don't sleep after watching a horror movie for a day or two. Okay. Well, even if it's not great (laughs) one, like, and I don't mean this in a condescending way. When you saw it at whatever Uh age you were, having not been exposed to anything like that before, like was your impression is like, like, Oh, that might be real. Like were think, you, were I, you fooled by the so. effects? I don't think it was that I thought it was real, but it opened me up to a range of horrors that life could provide. I see. It wasn't gotcha. that that shot was real. It's that that will like, like the way that my brain works, it goes, Oh, this will likely happen to you. <laughs> Okay, so, uh, and which is follow. I, yeah, go ahead. The follow up is when <laughs> did you discover that Stephen King was responsible for this? Um, that's well, not great, really, because yeah, know, he doesn't have anything to do with the sequel. That's what I was going to say. He's here to share of, the blame. I, I think I I think that I had people in my life that were trying to convince me that like there was something pleasurable about watching these kinds of movies. I had some friends, and I think yeah. we went back and watched Children of the Corn one. Uh, or as we call it, children of the corn. And um, <laughs> for those of us on the inside of the, the horror that was, trade. That was funnier than I. Yeah, my favorite was the Godfather one. That, that's the best. <laughs> that was good. That was good. Part one. Um, but I, I think that um, I, I think that I think that I started being introduced to it and I had friends. Now I was going into like high school and they were, you know, reading his books and and thing, and the truth is, is that I resisted almost entirely for a long time because I could deal with the movies because I was able to kind of step away, mm-hmm. or, and I was able to like kind of endure. Like I'm, a, I'm a, a funny thing about the film and all this. I'm also terrified of flying, which is weird because I have to travel most of the year for my career, and so like no shit, just, you're always I, posting. You're all yeah, over the damn world. Uh, I, yeah, because I, I I travel for work and I, but I'm ter- I, I'm terrified on every flight. I live in a con like I think maybe that's why I'm so attracted to it. Is I really live in a constant state of just kind of like existential terror, but not in like <laughs> not in a realistic way, not like in the way of like, but like every every scene in my life, every moment of my waking existence is the opening of a Final Destination movie. In my mind, I'm just, I'm reading 12 minutes ahead into how I die in this room, in every room I'm in. And so a horror movie, I can white knuckle in the way I can white knuckle a plane ride or a bus ride or a taxi that doesn't have a seatbelt, which makes me obviously convinced this is the one uh, where I die. Um, I can do that. But when I gets to books... Um, the the slow burn and the dread of of books, you know, with horror and, and thriller themes, it gives me my heart rate. My heart rate right now is 118 because I'm talking about it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I got to tell you, the man. This sounds like 
a sustainable <laughs> model for living. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm tired. I need a nap. How like, I you? need to get into this. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm just, and I, you know, I don't, it's, I don't think people ever expect that to be the case, but like, it's, it's really true. It's, I'm, it just, everything scares the living shit out of me. And that's why I'm attracted to this stuff because I feel like a slightly more control. But but Stephen King became something that all my friends were reading that I was too scared to, so I would watch the movies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And gotcha. I got into it almost like as a like I remember by my thirteenth or fourteenth birthday, I was like, We're gonna go watch Thinner on opening night, which I <laughs> yeah. yeah, again, I was thirteen or fourteen, but <laughs> but I love Thinner and we can talk about that some other time. But <laughs> I, Oh my but even oh, you're a even fan. movie like that's yeah I am I am a thinner fan. That's I'm sorry to, I'm me. sorry to interrupt, but we got to investigate this for just a moment. Um, have you seen Thinner lately? Oh yeah, I watched it like again two maybe a year year or two ago. Really, I was still with my fiance. I mean, okay. still a fan in a different way. <laughs> okay. Does that make sense? Okay, like, that there makes are sense moments okay. in that movie where you get to say, "I can't believe I'm on Earth at the same time as this thought." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, that's, and that's romantic in my mind. okay fair enough i'm sorry for taking us no no the, not at all uh, so that, I mean, that so there. in many ways my stephen king origin story is short because he something that was adjacent to his writing um scared the living shit out of me and but the movies I, are so intrinsic to the public perception of him and yeah. I, I think that even if, you know, that's partially what this whole show is about, I think, ultimately, is that, you know, you can you can be a Stephen King fan and, you know, technically not have read the books. You could just love the movies or and I, and, and some I'm, of the movies. I'm, you know? I'm one of those where, like, I, you know, The Mist is one of my favorite movies. I've never read the book. Right. But I love yeah. I love that movie. It's a, it's like an important movie to me. Okay, what uh, what are some of your other favorite King movies? Like, give me your maybe your top three. Uh, let's see. So I'm going to go with uh, obviously, obviously thinner, um, <laughs> <laughs> without question. Um, definitely the mist. I mean, I guess people talk about. I guess we include Shawshank Redemption. Sure. Right. Uh, I love Gerald's game. Gerald's game. Mm. Gerald's game. Well. Um, Obviously, you would say that. I would Seems, say that. Uh, suspicious. I also love Doctor <laughs> Sleep, um, but The Shining, of course. Um, right. I actually fucking love Doctor Sleep, and I I won't hear. That's one place where I'm I I I'm I'm firm on that one. Right. Um, you want to hear something funny? I I went last just last night. I went to go see The Lost City at the Alamo Draft House mm-hmm. here, and uh, you know the movie was mediocre or whatever. Uh, but this is the Alamo that has the shining carpet and the big oh, yeah, mural yeah. or thing on the wall, which is like the still from the Kubrick movie that leads into the carpet. Um, and I guess that must have spurned a conversation because as uh, after the movie, I was standing outside with uh, my friends who went to watch it. And this must have been 19, 20, 21 year old you know, pack of girls came out uh, from seeing something. And I assumed spurned on by the, the shining carpet conversation. One of them was just loudly going on about how much Dr. Sleep is her favorite movie. And it's like, this is the best movie that's ever. And she's like, you haven't seen it. Oh my God. So, you know, the little boy. <laughs> so in, she in thought the shining? it was a Dr. Sleep display. Well, I don't know. Well, no, because she was saying like, you know, the little boy in the shining. Well, it's all about him all grown up. And he, it was just funny to me after, 
you know, the movie kind of, you know, fizzled at the box office sure. and, and you know it's now regain it's now gaining kind of the the notoriety just could like the people mm-hmm. two blocks away could hear it she was that excited you know and it was telling everybody everybody that's about real, it so that's, that's really cool to hear but i'm going to tell you we got to keep this information away from mike mm. and his already <laughs> out of control ego right, he will right, right. you know be power mad if he hears this so Mike, stop listening to this episode and forget that if you you were listening to this one. I saw Doctor Sleep in the theater four times. I did. That's well, what do you I think about? It. We're getting distracted here, but but <laughs> like at once you've seen the director's cut, yeah. Do you even go back to the theatrical? Mm. And I like the theatrical. I like the theatrical very much. I haven't gone back to it though. Once I saw the the director's cut, it's like, well, now I know that experience is out there. I'm not gonna come on. I'm not going to do the the borderline Cliff's Notes version of this thing. <laughs> All right. No, I I, I you, always you like the director's cut. No, I always, I generally speaking, I with with one exception uh, in all the movies I've ever seen. Uh, there's one. There's only one director's cut that I like less than the theatrical. Can I um, guess? Sure. Donnie Darko. No. Really? No. That's interesting. Uh, Amadeus. Mm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't uh, one seen of it. The, it's a, what? I haven't seen the director's cut. Oh. Yeah. All right. Uh, you don't need to. You. I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think you need to. Okay. Is the Warriors cut with all the comic book shit, is that considered a director's cut? Because that's way worse than the original cut. I've never seen it, so mm. I don't have a... It's yeah. pretty much the only version you can find out there now, which is... Doubly bad. I, I like the. Do uh, I find it on YouTube or that you didn't tell me about existed? Or do I have <laughs> right, to buy a DVD right. and a DVD player? <laughs> I think the original cut of Alien is better than the Alien director's cut. Um, but yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying to think. I like the director's cut of T2, and Aliens. The camera director's cuts I'm always seem to, to add T2. more. I think I like the T2 director's cut. I, I really didn't want to derail. Your your work, and here I am. <laughs> but, but let's let's loop back very, as a means of, of of segueing gracefully. Let's loop back around to something you mentioned a moment ago. Would you like to explain the trials and tribulations that you went through trying to see the Night Flyer for means of yeah. discussing it on the show? Um, because also, yeah. you know, this this story will contain information that will probably be helpful to the listeners. So. Um, I was. Uh, we talked about the Night Flyer, which is a story I had not read nor a movie I had seen, and mm-hmm. so uh, I was excited to take on the task and learn a bunch. and And I went online and I, you know, I googled Night Flyer streaming, and it came up empty pretty quickly. And then I found on Amazon a copy that I could get for eighteen ninety nine, and I thought that's a small price to pay to be able to talk to Eric and Scott on this Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> if that's the price of admission, fuck it, I'm in. Um, and so, you know, I ordered it. It came to my door. I was very excited. And then yesterday, I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'd read the story. I'm like, okay, now I'm going to watch this movie. And I go and I take the, I open the, the package. It sounds like this, like that. And then I pop the little thing which was exciting. I hadn't done that in years. Mm-hmm. And then I start shoving the disc into the side <laughs> of my iMac just, and it's not going in. I'm just shoving it again and again, 
but there's I forgot that I don't have any kind of disc reader in the side of the computer, so I'm just <laughs> shoving it into the metal casing. Um, <clears throat> and so I go online, and, and then at first I search the house looking for anything circular that could pl- put a, place a disc in it. Um, and <laughs> the there's just... There's just nothing. It's just, you know, there's some pots, I guess, that are close in size. And I, uh, so I go online and I have to order a DVD player from the Apple store. Um, so that <laughs> arrives at two o'clock yesterday. What is the cost pl- of this conversation up to at this point? <laughs> uh, including the fee to get it delivered so quickly, uh, it's about $115 <laughs> um, to watch the Night Flyer. Uh, which apparently I've so, learned. You, know, you can since. watch it whenever you want, to be fair. So this is a gift that keeps on giving. Absolutely. Just maybe 30 or 40 more times and it'll be even. Uh, but apparently all this to learn within the first maybe 12 seconds of talking to, to you gentlemen that I can just watch it on YouTube. Um, <laughs> yes. But but the journey, it was about the journey that got us here because there was lots mm-hmm. of failure points, right? That right. was there what were. was so great. There, like, there were. Amazon could have not delivered. The DVD player could have been set to the wrong region. Mm. Who knows? Like there's so many things that made this moment more exciting because it cost me $120 to get here. I like that you eschewed the usual hero journey, <laughs> hero's journey moment here where Maybe you would have rejected uh, the calling to watch the Night Flyer, and yet you did not. We skipped over that trope, and I really, I, I really respect that tale. For, for you that. know, it's some storytelling is uh, it, it needs it needs to be sped along, as you can right. tell, as you can tell in this conversation so far with me. It's it's brevity and getting right <laughs> to the point that really make me who I am. <laughs> right, right. So um, let's start with the short story. Elon, what, what, could you lay out the, the, the basic plot of this story? You don't have to do it beat by beat, but what is, what is the Night Flyer about? Okay. Uh, the Night Flyer is it's about a, a reporter, I suppose, who also is a pilot. And he is, uh, <laughs> he's on the hunt. <laughs> he's on, and his name is Richard Dees, mm-hmm. which, which sounded like Rick Dees to me, for those of us that grew up in L.A., and he uh, he's he's kind of hunting someone uh, who I think has the name of a, a Dwight Renfield, if that is his real name, who's been flying in a little uh, in a little Cessna from town to town, um, and potentially murdering people, uh, and potentially doing it in a in a vampirous way. He's hunting and looking and searching and and doing all the detective work that one does. Uh, as a as a tabloid reporter who's trying to get to the bottom of a story, and he seems really uh, in the story anyway, he seems incredibly passionate about his craft. Uh, he seems to really want to get it right, and he has a, a camera with which he takes photographs to supplement his his work. I'm just describing what a what a reporter is, I guess, at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and he has a little notepad, and he writes things down. It, I suppose, yeah, this is all gold. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, 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 and I guess long story short, right. Uh, uh, he, tra- <laughs> he tracks down the Cessna that this, uh, person going by the name of Dwight Renfield, um, has been flying around in 
and he discovers uh, a bunch of uh, dirt and, and debris in the belly hold of the plane, um, which I guess tells him this is definitely a vampire going around with all of his um, his uh, sacred land, sacred mm. home dirt. Is that what, yeah, is that, what yeah. that is? The soil. Sacred, right. the, that, yeah. yeah. It would be anyone's assumption. I think. Yeah, that's, sure. that's normal. And then in one of my, maybe one of my favorite moments, uh, he kind of escapes to go collect himself as he realizes that there's just a, a lot of death around him. And he goes to, to, to use the restroom and to, I guess, wipe, wipe water on his face. And in the mirror, uh, he, he uncovers spoiler alert. And this is the thing I want to talk about more than anything, by the way, just so you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, he sees uh, red urine uh, hitting up against a, 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 a urinal in the mm, bathroom, yep. but no body there because as we all know, vampires don't cast reflections. Right. And, uh, and then the vampire, uh, which we've now, we, we, we've pretty established he's a vampire now between the, the urine blood, which again, I want to talk about <laughs> and the, the not having a, a reflection. And he goes up to him and um, basically has him uh, destroy all of the evidence of his existence. And that's, that's the story. Okay, so what is it about it that is so fascinating to you? Do vampires pee blood and why? <laughs> hmm. Well, A, I don't know that you can shit blood. I mean, you can. <laughs> I but can tell you that you can. <laughs> yeah. And, well, you know what I mean, though. Not pure blood. <laughs> Okay. You know, like, you know what I'm saying. Like, uh, so it would seem the the the. Uh, I don't want to be difficult here, but I really don't know what you're saying. It's an Mike. interesting <laughs> question. That's not what I thought you were going to ask. Honestly, no. What I thought, no. What I thought you were getting at was, well, if he's invisible in the mirror, yeah. Could you? Wouldn't you also maybe see the pee coming up and out mm-hmm. of the dick? No, that's mm-hmm. a very interesting question, and I. But, but that's it, more but, of like an invisible man thing, and right. that's not what—that's not what I'm focused on. I'm but the pee is on, visible. That's the thing. The, the pee is, is visible. visible, but I don't think it becomes visible until it's outside of the D. Mm. No, I think you're right. But sure. why is he yeah. peeing blood? Well, it could I just drink be water, bloody pee. Right? I drink water and then I pee urine. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think Shouldn't that's a, he be, yes. I think we can all agree. It's, on that. it's I'm maybe not that's, a doctor, but I I'm yeah. I'm not drinking urine and then peeing it. Right. I'm creating urine. Well, per, maybe it's kind of like you know how if you drink a lot of soda instead of water, your pee gets like turns like dark yellow orangish. Yeah, but it maybe doesn't. Like, when you drink a lot of coffee, it, it, like, it's, it's more, more, re- more red. The more blood he drinks, and he's not, you know, getting his uh, his daily hydration with other other fluids in there. And I guess they don't drink water. That's part of lore. Yeah. Right? So think, well, holy think water. about look. Think about it this way. Um, let's say you were <laughs> okay. Yeah. Let's say, let's see. Let's, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, follow my going, follow my I'm logic ready. here. Follow okay. my logic. Let's say you're a, a special kind of vampire. Uh-huh. And instead of drinking blood, you you drink piss. Okay. Uh-huh. A piss vampire. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Let's yeah, go. I, I'm talking about a piss vampire. The, the yeah, We're all with you. Vampire. Moving on. We, yes. know, we know the piss so vampires. It, 
<laughs> so if you were a piss vampire, hmm. how would you expel that all that piss? Of course, some of it's going to be absorbed into your body via whatever, but you're still taking on liquid and are going to express it, right? Mm-hmm. And okay, it, but you're you're here's here's where I'm gonna I'm gonna. So if it's just, blood, I mean, if that's all you're taking in, maybe uh, it's urine. You know, his form of urine is just like kind of a bloody urine plus moisture from the body thing right but you're 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 removing a, 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 an important part of of the, the conversation here which Go is on. everyone pees pee so you're you're the end point is the same right That's you could fair. say like well That's if fair. you drink coke you're gonna make urine if you drink sprite you're gonna make urine if you drink urine you're gonna make urine the urine's still the same the input is irrelevant it's the blood you're concerned about people is, do pee blood though not pure blood, but can not you get- also that quantity. <laughs> <laughs> well, people also don't have one giant tooth that they stab in the necks and suck. Yeah, that's true. With. I mean, there is a chance that the creature as depicted in this movie does not actually exist. And I, we haven't taken that into consideration. Yet. I mean, this might be a hypothetical conversation. I would there, really not want that to be the case, but there's an entire movie about this. I don't know how you can state that it's not real. They, there's a book and a movie. <laughs> That's true. That's true. That's a lot of effort for something that you think is imaginary. Okay. So we are in agreement <laughs> that you shouldn't be able to yeah. see the blood as it's traveling through his bladder and up through the urethra. Well, because what you're saying, just, just to be super clear, which I agree with, is it's not the the vampire is not transparent right the vampire correct. is a, is a the, the the corporeal form creates almost a a wrap for yes. the body and that is see through but it's it's cloaking right it's not invisible word word, mm. word. okay uh, but but like to the nature we're in agreement eye, on that but we are not in agreement on the what exactly that liquid is, I think. We don't well, know what it is. I mean, book, it's, it's, it's blood, right? But it's, it's pure, feels, pure blood. It feels like that's what the book is telling me. Okay. And in the movie, it looks, listen, there's not, this is DVD. I don't know where this DVD is from. It certainly wasn't made by the manufacturer. <laughs> but I couldn't see well enough to see if it was blood mixed with pee. And I'm not sure if was, the director made a decision one way or the other. It was definitely more like runny and liquid. It's, you know, usually blood in movies and stuff is shown as more thick and it'll like cling to surfaces and stuff. You know, this was definitely more watered down blood. I think it could the have assumption. Been, it could be ahead. intended to be pure blood. And that this was, it turns out that the consistency of the blood pee mm-hmm. simply wasn't up to snuff in the movie. Hmm. I, I feel like this because this is after he like sucked dry an entire mini airports worth of people, men, women, yeah. children, multiple dozens of people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he had to go and and, you know, expel some of that that stuff out. I, I think that the vampire biology is leaching nutrients that he needs out of that blood and is expelling uh, the new, you know, the just just like our RP is, you know, us expelling the stuff that is left over after our body takes what it needs from from liquid. So I'll go along I, with that. 
I the feel blood was darker, so I, I'll buy that at the moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think that that's <laughs> it. You know, we can table <laughs> this for now. We'll but table. We reopen yes. the investigation. This is only part one. I have lots of questions <laughs> about this vampire. That should have been the headline that uh, Richard Dees was going after the whole time. Is just all about vampire piss. Mm. Well, I mean, that at least you know that that opens up a whole world of, of questions. It's you well, know, you, opening up for a, a, a series of articles. Speaking of a whole world of questions, how how um, you'd never read the sh- the story. You read the story. You went to the movie. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel overall in terms of this film's uh, adaptive qualities? You know, do you think this is a you know fairly faithful? You think it did justice to the source material? You know, how do you think about it? what's your overall yeah. scorecard here? Uh, I think. You know, when I read the story, I thought to myself, uh, "This is a tough one, man. <laughs> uh, this one's going to be this one's going to be tough because it's it's so um, it's so thought heavy uh, from from Richard D's perspective. Like you just, it's so it's so em- emotionally driven, it's, mm-hmm. and it's hard to see what those scenes are really going to be. And it's also uh, relatively straightforward, right? He has a plan; he goes to execute the plan." Yeah, and so I think that the the movie did a great job um, of of getting all the elements and even expanding some from the story, um, but obviously it loses a bunch of its uh, of its uh, kind of closeness to the story because there's an entirely secondary layer, both with um, what is what is the name of the character uh, Catherine Catherine mm. right. Um, Jimmy, Catherine, aka, <laughs> aka yeah. Jimmy Olsen, yeah, as a um, as a as a potential uh, rival, and then and then the the, the tabloid uh, boss over at Inside View, um, you know, creating a, a very horrible work environment for them, which I think also something that they should think about for future newsrooms because mm-hmm. yes. it, it, didn't, it didn't feel like it was. A collaborative and open environment. That was not a writer's room I'd want to be in. <laughs> Does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that it was, sums it I, up pretty much. I I thought it, it added quite a lot, but it needed it because uh, it would have been one, you know, one man's journey from Milan to Minsk, essentially. Yeah, it's, there are, it, there are definitely scenes in the Night Flyer where. Nothing is being nothing of real value is being added to the narrative. You know the car right. wreck scene, for instance. Sure, yeah. You know, but I do, I do think the uh, the character, the the Jimmy character, uh, is is a great addition because it gives you like that little rivalry, and it's I don't know. I think they should have played that part up even more, like almost like a spy versus spy thing for these two would have been would have been pretty great. Right, right, yeah, she gives up the the case because she's the one who like digs this up and does all the research, and then they give it to their star reporter instead, and then so she right. spends like a third of this movie just kind of sulking in the background, clacking away at a computer, <laughs> sad that she didn't yeah get, get the credit, and then then uh, the editor kind of gets pissed at Richard D's and and this like. All right, so hey, why don't you uh, go and try to get it and out scoop him? And if you do, you'll get the credit and and uh, and send him along the mission. You can tell that they were trying to find places to thrust that character into the story. Yeah, and uh, uh, you know, but I, I I'm with Scott. I like it. I, you know, I like the the kind of mentor mentee thing that they that they're doing. You know, that's also 
you know, you can't trust Richard. He's a, he's a mean asshole who's always out for himself and that's kind of his character. And so even when he's, he's, uh, you know, helping her and teaming up with this other reporter, you know, it's all, you know, for his own needs mm-hmm. and stuff. So I don't know. Like, I, I think that they were able to enrich the character that was there with, with this other new character. Also, Miguel Ferrer is like, he's really great in this. Miguel Ferrer is great in everything. Yeah, sure. but it, it it feels like he's, it's uh, many, many years ago, I saw a one-man show and it was uh, it was Al Pacino at the Mark Taper just doing like Lucky Sunny or something like that. And I was like, I don't understand a single thing he's saying. But man, it is fun to watch that body move. Um, right, right. Which is something that I think everyone feels when they see Al Pacino for the first time. <laughs> yeah, yes. And watch that body move. And Miguel Ferrer here, it's almost like he was um, really, like this was the thing. He feels completely and totally invested in the, oh, in yeah. the character. And it's it's astonishing to watch him in certain scenes that feel like just pure exposition and him just finding ways to contort his face in a way to distract us from the exposition. <laughs> yeah. Um, he did a lot of heavy lifting and I really appreciate that. I appreciate Thanks. the, Thanks, uh, Miguel. the rage with which he, uh, the level of rage he's operating at throughout this movie. Like, yeah, he if seems Miguel like Ferrer, fucking not a happy guy. <laughs> Miguel Ferrer is one of the all time greatest that guys, you know what I mean? Um, I bet if you, I bet it, you could show, especially to like, you know, younger people and stuff, a photo of Miguel Ferrer and they'd know him from certain things, but I think a lot of people wouldn't be able to name him. Um, but one of the all time best, you know, uh, yeah, this is one of the rare chances where you get to see Miguel Ferrer in like a leading role. And what's so great about it to me is that like, you know, uh, another actor might use that as a way of sort of, you know, show, showing off their skills. I'd be capable of leading a movie. I can do more than being like a weaselly side character of some sort. Right. Miguel Ferrer said, fuck that. And was like, I'm going to take this already very mean spirited script and come at it with a degree of anger where <laughs> in every scene you see, I'm going to be like a coiled spring ready to. <laughs> break out and break your fucking jaw for no reason. Like that's, it's such a, it's not an unhinged performance because it's like very, it is measured. controlled, right? Yes. Yes. It's unhinged in a different way where it's like, what this is, man, you really fucking committed to this absolute prick of a character. (laughs) And I think that's just, I think that would turn off some viewers and be like, you know, how do I root for this guy? Like, you're not supposed to root for him. No, and that's what I love. There's no one to root for here. You're almost (laughs) kind of rooting for the vampire at times. (laughs) Right. But yeah. Um, But to to that point uh, that that you made there, Scott, like he fills, uh, Miguel Ferrer fills every single spare inch of uh, time on screen that he has was something like there's that there's that thing in the beginning where uh, he's in the meeting with the editor after we've been introduced to this uh, this new young cub reporter 
and she comes back in looking for her purse and Miguel Ferrer has had it and has been smelling it. Yes. And like kind of <laughs> off in the corner of the screen, he's like, he's, he's doing really weird shit and like wrapping the purse strap <laughs> around it and like kind of taunting her with it. It is, it is such a bizarre choice and, and the movie's filled with that kind of stuff. And that's, you know, it, they're like little, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, joyous discoveries, Cracker Jack prizes that we get on rewatch, where if you just watch Miguel Ferrer, even if he's not the focus of a scene, he is doing something to be really skeezy and weird. And I love it. One of my favorite Miguel moments, and that's capital M, capital M, by the <laughs> way, uh, is, you know, when she when the two of them start working together on the case, there is a legitimate feeling of. Okay, so this is the arc of this character. You know, he's a fucking, yeah. you know, kind of grizzled, you know, hard drinking, smoking, just t- hard ass guy who's on his biggest case ever. He's learning to be a team player and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, all right, let's get out of here. You got to, you know, like we got to go to fucking Wilmington or wherever the fuck it was. And uh, she's like, all right, I'll be back in two minutes. And the camera take goes to her room, watches her pack two suitcases and then return, and you're like, great, now they're going to get out of here and go to Wilmington. And then the room is empty, and you're like, holy shit, what a prick. But then, not only did he just leave, but then he <sighs> jumps up from behind her with a sheet, throws it over her, and locks her in a closet with a hanger. It's such a great, like, fuck you from the movie, right? Like, you thought this guy was going to have an arc? No, he's still a prick. He's going to remain a prick until this thing is over. I love I love that little just that little twist in it. Unlikable characters I think are really uh, likable. Um and I think that's something that we don't have enough of is you can also feel that he's like right. he li- he likes it. He's happy with who he is. Oh yeah, for An sure. An arc would be uh would would throw away all of what what he's built. And I I got to tell you, that's way more authentic uh, to the kind of assholes I've run into in my own life. Uh, you know, day to day stuff. These assholes love who they are. This isn't oh right. one of those. Everybody's a hero in their own minds. Like, no, he knows he's a fucking prick and he loves it. And he's like that. That's what he's going for. And in my experience, that's more often uh, what you stumble upon in the world, out in the real world, not uh, not these misunderstood, you know, people who are accidentally doing harm and thinking they're no. like the good guys. No, I think I don't think assholes are just like, man, where's my turning point? I think they think that they're not the assholes is the thing. And I think he just thinks he's playing the game. And I think he just thinks he's doing what he needs to do to survive. And at every moment someone who's trying to take away something that could be his is the enemy and that's normal i suppose (laughs) but maybe not to this degree but the impulse certainly i have one thought that i think this is the only one i have um for this conversation that i think is interesting um and i'd like to get your thoughts on it um because the the came in with just the one thought i just thought i don't i only knew i needed one You know, you didn't tell me about YouTube. You didn't tell me to have numerous ideas. You know, I'm barely operational as a person. And you put a microphone in front of me and here we are. And I'm sorry in advance. Um, But the the motto of never believe what you publish and never publish what you believe, Hmm. which is his works really, really beautifully in the story. 
because it, again, this is just my my reading of it is he then can't publish the truth about Dwight Renfield, right? He has to make a decision about publishing what he believes because it will cost him his life. Yes. Whereas in the movie, it's taken away from him, but she, and is the idea that she's publishing, it's just, it's hard, it's hard to, to how it changes, how that, that mm. motto changes when it's out of his hands, if that makes any right. sense. Yeah, yeah it's and it's more not really being that. It, yeah, and it's not being twisted or perverted in any way. She's doing it in the exact same way he intended it. But he would have published what he believed, wouldn't he have? Yeah, I think so. I Wasn't think, he I anxious know. to publish what he believed? He, Otherwise, he was, why obvious. would he have any fear about getting rid of the film that was proof of the vampire? Right. And and I think that his choice that he has where he because he was safe, like he was left alone in the in the bathroom and and Renfield is a fan of of his and reads the inside view and all that and like lets him live. And right. uh, it was in that that's what was going to happen. But he can't he couldn't stop pursuing the story. Right. And that's that's what his thing is. He said, I have to see your face. I have to know what you look like. I have to know what's going on, essentially. And that seals his doom um when he actually sees and is confronted by this by this thing um so is that why he uh reaches an untimely demise because he finally is planning on doing what he says you shouldn't do i think that he crosses the line he he crosses the line that he establishes early on with that other was her name Dottie, the the other reporter that worked Mm -hmm. That worked for Inside View and got too much in it, and I think he even—that's what the inspiration of, of passing along the motto was. Is she, she got, she let it get what they were reporting on get to her, and you know, uh, believed it too much, and so by the end of this, at the end of the movie, he gets uh, the vampire blood right to, and he gets kind of sent into that black and white hellscape where all the the victims that he's seen throughout, not just the ones in the airport, but also. You know, I think you even see the ones he saw in the car crash and all that stuff are there and they start like swarming him. And that's his version of putting the bag over his head and drowning himself in the bathtub, which happened to the other reporter. And right. he starts hacking everybody down. And then the the end of the movie is the cops coming in and thinking he killed everybody in the in the airport and gunning him down. So that it's him drinking the Kool-Aid, I think, is what the movie's ending is intended to be and falling too much into it. I'm not as quick to say I think he's going to publish it because I'm not entirely sure what his fate is long-term if the cops don't come in right then like right that black and white world that he goes into is that now his waking world once he's taken the blood like is this going to be like a a reality he lives in inside inside of now or is that just a vision brought on by the blood entering his system Mm -hmm. or some shit well is he he a vampire is he a partial that's what i'm asking that's what you're asking I'd, yeah, and so if the cops don't come in right then, then what happens? And I, I think know. you can't answer whether or not he would publish it until you know the answer to that question. And well, I think that his intention was to keep going before the the, the vision part. You know what I mean? It's I, I'm I'm talking about like leading up to him seeing Renfield and Renfield showing him his face. Like if Renfield had just turned around, showed him his face and then walked out and not given him all that stuff. I think mm-hmm. that he absolutely would have published everything that he'd, he'd seen there. Right. Um, but I think that once, 
Yeah, well, I'm. I mean, that's the that's the character, though. You know, that, that that's what I mean is that's the 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 character couldn't turn away from the story. Like he had the opportunity to. But would in he the back, even care laughing. about the story if like he's half vampire now? I feel like if you're you suddenly mm-hmm. get made a vampire. I mean, I'm not even clear on if he would be a full vampire or a half vampire. You know, I'm not a. You know, yeah, a, that's and, a big question because he had some blood, but uh, right. what's the right amount? I know. Yeah. Midnight mass rules. You can you can ingest yeah. as much vampire blood as you want as long as you don't you don't hit a certain level and die. Right. Which, yeah, by the way, turn. begs the question. Uh, going back just a second, if you drink a little bit of vampire blood, you know, does that? What, at what point do you go full vampire, or are you just getting a bit? But uh, if you were to drink vampire blood pee, right? By mm. what you said earlier, <laughs> all of the nutrients have been taken out. Are those the vampire nutrients? Does mm. vampire blood pee turn you vampire? No, but you can drink it to survive if you're alone in the wilderness. That, that's that's a good compromise. And, and you'll be fine on this. And you'll yes. be fine. Yeah. Got it. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure we circled back to that. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, listen, I, I think that you're right. Once once he's into that that weird Mario Bava like hellscape at the end, like he, he's gone. No, I, I don't know if he's going to be full vampire, but that's his breaking point. That's where like mentally he's gone bye bye. And that's why, um, uh, you know, that's why because he has that thing where you're not sure if he broke out of it when uh uh, the Jimmy Olsen character comes back when she walks back through the door mm-hmm. and he attacks her with, with the ax. Um, but we never see from his point of view after that moment. Like, so I, I don't know, is he always in that hellscape and was, was, would always be in that hellscape? Maybe I really don't know. The movie doesn't really make it clear. That's right, folks. At the dulcet sounds of Robert Zombie's voice, it's time for the mid-roll ad read, once again sponsored by the good folks at Athletic Greens and our new friends over at HelloFresh. Let's start with the former. We use Athletic Greens products literally every day here at KingCast HQ. I started taking Athletic Greens because, you know, I I need the vitamins. I am not getting them elsewhere, and... uh, You know what? Here's a way to take something that doesn't taste like it's super healthy. In fact, Athletic Greens has kind of a mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to each morning. You think of me as a a tropical kind of guy, right, Eric? Oh, yeah. With Hawaiian shirts and hula skirts for some reason. It's totally. an odd combo. That's the that's the first thing I think of when I think of myself as Sipping well. my ties at the beach. Yeah. Yes. Well, that is a thing I would do. But so what <laughs> is it with one delicious scoop of athletic greens? You're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, aging, all the things. It even supports mental clarity and alertness, which is certainly something that I definitely need to do while recording this show. Also, it's uh, recommended by pro athletes, so you know, not just uh, portly podcast hosts. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's cheaper than purchasing all the separate ingredients yourself and all for less than $3 a day. One scoop and a cup of water every time. Boom, you're done. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs 
with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash kingcast. Again, that is athleticgreens.com backslash kingcast to take ownership over your health and pick up the daily nutritional insurance. Eric, go ahead. We, we got lots of stuff to ingest in the mid-roll this time. I'm really excited for our new sponsor, HelloFresh. This is something I've been like jealously watching my neighbors get since uh, the whole lockdown thing started. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've been on the fence about jumping over, and then lo and behold, they said, we want to sponsor the show. And guess what? I finally got me some HelloFresh. Also, guess further what really delicious stuff. So you guys know HelloFresh. They are America's number one meal kit service. They deliver farm fresh seasonal produce and easy to make recipes right to your door. We're talking recipes so simple, even I can make them look professional and fancy. And that's saying something. The ingredients are measured for you, so there's no waste or guessing involved. You just follow the recipe and voila, delicious meals. You've got a variety of options that you can choose from to fit your discerning palate. If you're a vegetarian, they got you covered. Me, I hate seafood. I really hate seafood. Me and the fishies don't get along. Maybe it's allergies. Maybe it's just I've always thought they were gross. I don't know what it is, but I do know that uh, HelloFresh was very easy in uh, letting me avoid that. You can choose your own dietary adventure here, folks. So what I ended up getting was a delicious trio of pork, beef, and chicken-based dishes, because that's the stuff that I like. That's the stuff that I eat regularly. My favorite was a tasty pasta dish called Southwest Beef Cavatappi. Uh, To Mm. put it into context, my fellow nerds can recognize cooking this dish was like putting together a sweet Lego set. Like I methodically followed the directions, which came with like a little (laughs) pamphlet with helpful pictures and shit. Uh, So it was easy for me not to get lost while I was making this, which uh, happens more often than I'd like to admit. Uh, And by the end of it, I had a delicious dinner that looked way better than most things I usually make for myself. So if you want to get in on this number one meal kit in America business, go to HelloFresh.com slash KingCast16 and use the code KingCast16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. What kind of free gifts? I don't have a single clue, but who doesn't love free shit? I know I do. That's HelloFresh.com slash KingCast16. Now, with all of that said, let's get back to the show. Isn't it a better story for her to talk about what really happened since she's safe rather than to kind of take Richard Dees and turn him into a, into a, a problematic uh, serial murderer? That's, ah, but it's it's, it's flashier. It's flashier for for all the the many you know tens of that thousands or whatever of readers. Especially you know, the person they've been reading. A, uh, he was such an yeah. institution within that magazine, right? It also says hi here at this here at Inside View. We we have an unsafe work environment. <laughs> many, <laughs> they don't care about that. This is the nineties. Many of our people are murderers or killing themselves. Right. Maybe you don't want to work here. It just feels like it's not good PR. Like you think the boss you know, in, would say, in, let's go with the vampire thing. In, in in 10 years, you know, they would have been all online anyway. So, yeah. Plus, I guess so. you know, you, you look at some of the other stuff going on within the offices of Inside View, and it, it just seems like uh, an HR minefield. It's um, true. And they I, have I, all that haze outside their windows at all times. There's all right. that. That's, it's that like soft lighting. Like you associate with like 1995 porno movies on on Cinemax, (laughs) you know, at like 2 a.m. That always had like Shannon Tweed in them or some fucking shit. That's what the the whole movie has that like sort of sleazy uh, gloss to it, which really works. 
to its benefit, given the the sort of story that it's telling, I think. How do you feel about the aesthetics of this movie, Elon? I think it feels very of its time, if that makes yes. any sense. Like no, it for feels, sure. It, it feels... Uh, it, it makes feels a lot of sense. Lo- <laughs> You've seen uh, it. <laughs> it, was, it was made definitely in the time in which it was produced, and you can feel that throughout the film. And it's one thing that I think kind of holds yes. it back a little bit. This is a movie that both Scott and I have agreed that it's like gained in... in uh, favor i guess or our, our favor our personal ranking since we started this show yes um and the more we watch it and the more we have an excuse to watch it it is the more we enjoy it but it really I, on this rewatch this morning i was sitting there going this is such a fucking killer premise such a great premise that I I'm shocked that it hasn't been remade and done uh, a little less, um, you know, mid nineties, uh, made for cable. There are some scenes in it though, that are, that have great shots in them. There's a sequence where, you know, he comes out of like a fucking trailer home or something and he's got to get from the front door that to his car, which is, you know, 20 yards away or something. But there's a dog on top of the, like a, a very unlikely dog sitting on top of this trailer thing that's like foaming at the mouth and snarling and sort of like following him along as he walks. And it goes into like a tracking shot for a second. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, shit, if they just hold that shot all the way down the building, that's going to be really cool. Now, you, of course, kind of fuck it up by throwing a couple of cuts in there. But mm-hmm. I could imagine that scene with like a slightly more. um experienced cinematographer or a really a better editor making that like a real tense fucking moment. And it's the surreality of it because the dog is on the roof of this fucking thing. And you're like, how the dog, like you don't know at first how the dog got up there. And it turns out it was a bunch of stacked hay bales, like in a cartoon (laughs) at the end, which is in its own way, a little bit of a punchline. But uh, anyway, I'm rambling, but I I really like that moment. But there's also things that are difficult for me to to figure out. Like I don't understand the motivation of the vampire. Just being honest, that's that's the one thing that I think makes it hard. It does seem like he's going about things in a very complicated way. It's super complicated. You have to get a pilot's license. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he he was a pilot. We got you know how much fucking paperwork that is. Sorry, go ahead. I am guessing he's not fully authorized. Right. He didn't well, fill out sure. paperwork and sit in a little lobby somewhere waiting to take a test. Like that, he, that he's got he a tail number. And made it his own. Right. No, this it's such a it's like one of the weirdest ways to be undercover is to have this highly trackable thing flying <laughs> through the sky <laughs> with a number on it that is only yours forever. Right. Like there's no fuck because he'll just kill everybody. Yeah, but why, and, and but hypnoti- why all hypnotize the, f- the others, yeah. Can't he fly? Can he fly? Can he fly? That's a question. Well, that's a good question because most <laughs> vampires can. And that's the whole point is they can turn into bats and shit and fly away. Right. Um, but I think that if you ask Stephen King, can he fly? The answer would be yes, but he just, he just chooses to use an airplane. And yeah. if they, the further question is why, it would be like, I don't know. That's what makes this one special. Well, here's what here's what I would argue that the that the next iteration of this is not that he's a pilot; it's that he can turn into a Cessna, <laughs> a vampire. That's Cessna. fucking cool, right? Imagine a vampire <laughs> starts. What, 
running what down you are the runway and then jumps and becomes a Cessna. I don't mm. think that you realize that what you are suggesting right now yeah. is the airplane form of the Dragula. Yes. What, what could be better? Nothing, <laughs> I, I tell you. In fact, why doesn't Rob Zombie own a Dragula Airlines with Dragula-themed planes? That's the mm. better question. Just imagine a guy saying you're cleared for landing, the Cessna approaches, and then it's just a dude running as he lands. <laughs> And you, and there's questions you'll have, like, where do you store the drink cart? Um, uh-huh. And there's things to figure out. There's uh, I'm not a, what is on an engineer. They're, right. Well, maybe some of that pee blood. Because um, <laughs> water is out, apparently, in this world. <laughs> um, but that's that. I think that's the thing. That, that's the one place where I'm missing is that I just feel like if you've ever been in a Cessna, it's not, a, it's not great. It's not a pleasant. It's not no, a no, no. pleasant this, travel experience. Well, I mean, I think that what they because they have that moment where Miguel Ferrer finds that old photo album that is the exposition backstory photo album for the the vampire, and it shows that you know he had a a bride. It's like old timey photos, and he was also a pilot, and you know he's posing next to his plane and all that. So uh, the idea is that as a vampire, you always need to be near your coffin the old the old versions of it you have to have coffin with your own soil your, your own home soil in it uh, in order to sleep you can't just like go go and hide in a in a dark room or whatnot when the sun comes out you have to go to a specific place that's you know they ship dracula's coffin and soil and in nosferatu they do the same thing and well that's, that's fair, the old but, version of it yeah but, but he uh, like he this guy looks like he's from Milwaukee. It doesn't it's true. It doesn't look like he's from the old country. I just feel like he should just kind of, you know, stay where he is, sleep in bed at night, like or in, in ground, whatever, like a normal mm-hmm. person, and mm-hmm. then become a plane when there's not <laughs> enough people near you to consume. But then just come home. It's just a lot it's a it's a lot of uh, shoe leather for blood that it doesn't even seem like he's that picky. I don't know what the travel is all about. I would bet a large amount of money that the answer is it's just funny that a vampire, which you would think could fly, flies yeah. an airplane. I really think it's that simple because otherwise the story would be at a fucking trucker. And also, he probably just liked the term night flyer. But the night, he could be a night flyer on his of own. the road? No, on his well, own. He could, well, yeah, well, he could. But then you don't get the There's the no day flying. Vampires. There's no double meaning in the title now. We got to keep that, baby. We can't be getting rid of that. I guess that's fair. If he's just like an actual night flyer. No, this is like he's he's a night flyer in a couple of ways. You know what I'm saying? I guess I have that's to remind like. myself that this is a fiction thing occasionally. Right, right. Allegedly. Allegedly. We don't know. Here's, don't know. here's a question. If you are Richard D's in this situation, yeah. um, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, but... Uh, you encounter the vampire in the bathroom. He exposes your film. He's yeah. walking out. You know, what is your next, your immediate next move in that moment? I, uh, I, tr- I quickly wind, quickly. I wind up the reel so that I, I seal. I, I, you know, I obviously I've read the book if I'm him. So I, I, I know that he's going to take my film. So I, I try to, to wind it up and, and, get it in a safe place in my pocket outside of the camera. And then I, I probably do follow him out the same way that Richard did, d- does, but I, I scream instead, um, 
where did you go to flight school? <laughs> because that my curious nature wants me to go down that road. And then I, I try to, honestly, honestly, I try to convince him that I'm, I'm less interested in exposing him and more in like a, a kind of a puff piece. Like, let's get into this. Let's like understand. Yeah, let's understand everything <laughs> from Dwight Renfield's POV. Like, you're letting the media, the fake news media, decide who you are. Let's hear it from you. Mm-hmm. You know? Number one like, question on there has got to be about the name. I mean, never mind the fact that he's traveling around in an airplane with an easily tracked flight number on it. Right. But he's also going by the name Dwight Renfield, which, you know, anyone who's passingly familiar with the Dracula mythology would probably be clued in by one of those names. Well, he wants to get caught because he wants this puff piece. He wants wants to tell his story. That's why he's also a fan of Richard D's. This whole this whole thing has been designed to, you know, obviously, maybe he's only flying the plane because he knows Richard D's likes flying around in planes, and he's That's, looking for a, a compassionate storyteller to come around and, uh, you know, explain why the people need to have their blood <laughs> taken from them from his mm. perspective. Right. He's doing the the vampire version of the the hitchhiker on the side of the road that like the lady that like shows her leg. To, to attract a ride. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to get Richard D's to, to come in and yeah. write about him. Yeah. I mean, this guy's been doing this for a while, right? And right. if he didn't want to get caught, he would not be doing a bunch of the bullshit he's doing. So so clearly, he's just, this is more of a, a pointed, he's like looking for the right guy for his biopic. You know, curiously enough, a, a sequel was written for this. And it was written, co-written by King himself. Really? Uh, I guess, yeah, I guess King was very happy. Must have been very happy with the movie because, uh, well, first of all, he picked this director. I didn't know this. I Actually, I read it earlier today in a piece that uh, Eric Eisenberg wrote for Cinema Blend recently. You know, this director, Mark Pavia, had made a short film like that apparently owed quite a bit to uh, Night of the Living Dead called drag that had made the rounds in Hollywood and Mm -hmm. got a lot of people interested in him and King and uh, this other guy, a producer, I believe were interested in like rolling the dice on this kid. He brought in, you know, uh, the night flyer, they make this movie. And then shortly thereafter, King co-wrote with Pavia a a movie called fear of flying, which was a sequel that focused on the, the Jimmy Olsen character and also the origins of, the night flyer, which, you know, obviously we've been left with a lot of questions about that as mm-hmm. this conversation has shown. Um, Do you I think hear half this of that story gotten... was all about the the vampire's pee, which would would have answered yeah, everything yeah. that we we had had. The three hour cut, the director's cut is the yeah. director's cut also explains the pilot school part of it. <laughs> it must. Um, and then here's a little side note. Quote, however, the duo failed to gain the required $10 million in financing from Hollywood Studios due to the original film being viewed as merely a minor cult hit. The punchline to that, kind of, to minor cult hit and asking for $10 million for the sequel is this movie only made $125,000 in theaters. (laughs) So I can see why a sequel was probably a big ask. That's a lot of money to make a sequel to this movie. 
it feels like. I would have liked to know what was so expensive. Yeah. Well, I'm very curious about the budget on this one as well, which I can't seem to find a, a firm number on. But I guess maybe in the sequel, it he does been. turn into a plane. That feels like it would cost more. <laughs> yeah. Or if there's a whole flight school sequence and you're going to have to have like, there's probably going to be like an army you know, of planes too. Yeah. We're going to need like an aerial attack sequence in there at some point. <laughs> so yeah, that's uh, going to be pricey as well. You can see how it would add up, but I would honestly, I would absolutely watch a sequel to this movie. Sure. You know, it's such a goofy uh, mythology, which as we can see, inspires so many like deranged fucking questions because it, <laughs> it kind of makes sense but also once you start picking at it it like starts you know furiously unspooling but i would i would definitely see more of this and and also in in this exact tone where it's just oh yeah you're gonna hate everyone in this movie <laughs> it's just a wall-to-wall pricks in here and uh someone's gonna get their comeuppance in the end that's all we can tell you uh, i'll probably watch it again i'll probably um like well you gotta get your value your I, yeah that's it. the thing i'm gonna charge people at the door of the house <laughs> but um i think i think there's something really uh fun about it, if that makes any sense like it's, yeah for me it's the kind of movie where you can watch it and if you allow yourself to not take it too seriously and to 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 feel like it was made with a certain amount of whimsy and then to mm-hmm. ingest it with that same amount of whimsy. It's actually just very fun. It's a fun watch as opposed to anything you have to, you know, really get. Sure. There, there, there's no character to become overly emotionally invested in. <laughs> right. Which I, think I, I, would which also, I like I, sometimes. I would take issue with the word whimsy uh, being used to describe <laughs> this film in any way. I really? think it's so um, it feels whimsical. Like the all the it's, deaths it's, it's, at it's the cruel. Airport. It's a cruel movie from top to bottom. It's just mean. It's just a yeah. mean movie. Yeah, you know, the gore is really in your and, face. Yeah, yeah. Like even the moment you meet Dees, he fucking <laughs> you, you see him come into the office, and there's like a woman there reading a piece of paper in the foreground. He marches all the way up the hallway behind her and he grabs it. And he's like, give me this goddamn thing. And like turns and walks out of the room. You have no idea why he's so mad. It turns out that like he he couldn't have known to be mad ahead of time because the what makes him even more mad is information he learns from the paper. He's just you should have seen the last paper he was looking at. It got him into that state. Of, well, of isn't mind. his his first line like where what happened to my goddamn dead baby or whatever? Because right. he's yeah, talking yeah, about yeah. his dead baby. It's story. not his first line, but it's like it's the second for sure. Right. But I guess that's yeah. what I mean by whimsy. Is that like <laughs> <laughs> I know that sounds weird, but like he can't really mean that. Like he's I he's almost joking. <laughs> Right, like, like you I mean, think he's, this initially, or like after you've seen seen the movie. Now it's very hard to know because some, you know, one thing that I, we have to address that he's, you know, obviously uh, he's acting. The the actor is acting, so he doesn't. He's not angry, right? He's he's pretending to be, as far as we know, <laughs> and, that, and as, as I far as far as I know, know. yeah. Yes. And as a result, there's a. To come into a room, like, I don't think you can walk into a room and scream, where's my dead baby, without, I think knowing, without knowing that that's a strange way to start a conversation. Sure. I, think he's, I think he's excited to be having the feelings he's having in some ways. <laughs> so, you, okay, so you're, <laughs> what you're pitching, 
<laughs> but your pitching is that Miguel is just having a ball here and really leaning into it. And the character as well, if that makes any sense. Sure, sure. Because the like character he, enjoys being a dick. Every, yeah, every day of his life is like this. Like, it's he can't really be <laughs> mad all the time. At some point, you've been like, on Twitter? He's leaning in. Okay, you're right. Yeah, some people are mad a lot. Some people are mad a lot. That's true. Whenever I see, I see that so often, like, and it's, it's people I follow that I need to un- probably like unfollow on there who just like are at a constant level of fury. Mm. And I'm like, how do you do like fucking, I get up real early in the morning, you know, <laughs> or, or earlier than most people. Right. And so uh, when I get up in the morning, I'll have some coffee, uh, read the overnight emails, uh, check Twitter. And it's funny because you get that little like window of peace where it's it's anyone from the UK that's tweeting at that point and they're they've all got their own fucking problems to deal with, you know. So yeah. you know, you don't really have the context for a lot of it. Um, or they're yelling at JK Rowling, rightfully. Um, and then the next thing is like uh East Coast East Coast and Central start waking up and the real furious people will suddenly show up on the feed. And it's like if a, a cup of coffee in the morning were like a, a, a bucket of shit getting thrown in your face, like <laughs> these people just like you wake up furious, <laughs> like and just log in and start. This is what I'm going to do today. Richard D's has that in him. And I don't know how you maintain that level of uh, just just constant anger. Like, don't you aren't you just a fucking human ulcer at this point? Mm-hmm. What I, but what I like about his anger that's different is that it's specific, if that makes any sense. Like there's a, the the thing that always alarms me on Twitter is simply the quantity of opinion generation. (laughs) Yeah. It's not that like I agree or disagree as much as I can't imagine feeling that many things that quickly. It takes me a long time to form an opinion that I want to stand behind. Um, (laughs) That's not what I, it's for. <laughs> I, it's I know, but it's and 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 for, but for me, it's so strange that people like there's there's an immense freedom that people feel that I'm almost envious of in some ways. I guess where like I, I it's not that I'm not saying things because I don't want to deal with with how people respond to them, but I don't always know how I feel immediately, mm-hmm. and I don't always know how to express the things that I'm I'm dealing with. Or that I'm considering. And I just feel like it's like I see something and my first thing isn't like, let me respond. It's like, I should go do some reading about this. <laughs> right. Right. So I can no. so I can figure it out. And, and but but Richard D's like there's one problem, and his problem is always the same, right? It's he's smarter and better than everybody else. He's better there at this go. job. And uh-huh. anyone that is stopping him, like that, he's he's simply mad at the hierarchy. Of the tabloid, right? Like right. he's he, having the answer to anybody. He doesn't want to be the editor, but he right. wants the editor to shut the fuck up, yeah. right? <laughs> and and if the editor did shut the fuck up, and you put Richard D's in charge, it would just he would just be mad at the next person, like the person who actually does the the printing or the person who sells the ad. He's just angry at explaining himself. Something mm-hmm. happened to him <laughs> when he was young and he felt misunderstood and mm-hmm. he felt like he had something very, imp- you know, he was like, it's speaking of Elijah Wood in deep impact, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's, 
I've never, I don't think I've ever in my life in a conversation heard someone say, well, think of Elijah Wood in Deep Impact. Think about it, right? Really think about Elijah Wood in Deep Impact. And that's what Richard Dees is. Richard Dees is the guy that discovered the meteor and everyone's in his way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's, and that's, I think in many ways, I think Nightflyer takes place in the Deep Impact cinematic universe. Hmm. <laughs> And I don't think enough people are talking about that. <laughs> That's true. I didn't see where you were going with that to begin but with. But that was crystal but, clear. Oh. Brought in for a landing even a night flyer could appreciate, buddy. <laughs> oh, man. That was uh, that sounds like one of those like um, wrap-ups. <laughs> that sounds like one of those, uh, this was a mistake, but let me salvage it. <laughs> No, because there is actually one more thing I want to talk about. Um, yeah. And Eric, you may have your things as well. I will just mm. get mine out of the way. I would like to talk about the design of the vampire in this movie and oh, how yeah. we all feel about that. Looks like a yeah. werewolf. <laughs> I see. I see. <laughs> He's got a big old mouth, that one. So we have um, werewolf. Um, Vespi, what do you think? Uh, I think he looks better as the monster vampire than when he's just the guy. <laughs> you know? Uh, well, he- I definitely... Well, yeah. Good. Well, I mean, yeah. in terms of being a monster, yeah. Well, just in terms of being any sort of threat, you know, because then he just looks like a, you know, a dentist that's going to the neighborhood Halloween party <laughs> or whatever, wearing the no, you're the oh, for sure. Club. The guy looks like he's going to like rob an old stagecoach, <laughs> right? Uh, but the monster design I actually really like, I and I like a that they fancy lad vibe from him. They do. Well, you need they money do. to go to flight school. Well, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's for true. Uh, the monster design, I think, is is cool, and I always like it whenever they show a vampire as a monster and not, you know, just a mm-hmm. a baron with uh, you know with long teeth or whatnot. Uh, and I do love the conceit of this to where, like, no, in real life, vampires just have one big giant mole man tooth, <laughs> you know, that they punch through the the side of the neck. Um, I, I think it looks pretty cool, to, to be honest. And you only really get one shot that's a really good look at him and they cut away from it and cut back to it a couple of times but it's clearly the same angle and the same the same shot so it's like they they were able to get the puppet to work once maybe uh, to uh to give that full front front uh facing view of of the, the the creature and i really like it well i gotta say i'm concerned about something you just said yeah um this business about it being one tooth it's two is it not one on the bottom one on the top the one on the top is definitely bigger but right there and might be it, a little one it's on like the bottom, a, but it's, it looks, a, it's, it's a, a primary thrusting tooth up top. Right, because it moves, it punches out of the, the gums and stuff, yeah. See, what I saw, or thought I saw, was it's a smaller tooth, granted, but there are two. And so what I'm imagining is the the night flyer turns his head to the side, mm-hmm. and ba-bam, like, think of like a stapler remover. Oh, right. like one on each you. side of the neck? Yeah. One on that's each true. side, and that's, that's why true. there's two different holes but when eric was talking just now i thought he was talking about one tooth going in from the top and then coming out the other side uh Mm. no i think you're right i mean when i said one tooth it's kind of like vampires have a lot of teeth they just have the two top fangs you know that's what i was sure 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 i I was you know more mentioning but i think you're right that there's there's the one on the bottom that kind of grips and then the the main tooth that goes all the way in but the main tooth that's long enough to to punch through a full neck though 
But this is an early. This has to be an early evolution vampire because this is one of the least effective orientations of teeth to remove blood from a neck. <laughs> mm-hmm. the, way, the way that you would, ha- if you just think about it, you, the way you'd have to <laughs> think about this, gentlemen. Like, let's get just real as he thought of Elijah and deep impact. Yes, there the amount of pursing that you would have to do because your mouth is wider than it is tall. Um, you would have to really, it would almost be a straw-like thing and you wouldn't be able, I don't think, to to get the blood out. You know, if, if you have teeth on either side, fangs, the canines, then you can use the center of the mouth, which is kind of the focal point of sucking, I see. Uh, mm-hmm. to, to bring all the blood in, whereas the top and bottom tooth moves all the pressure in from the outsides of the mouth where there's a lot less room, quite frankly. Very it strikes well, me as well. not yeah. a good, not a well- it's a. I love the way it looks in the movie, but as far right. as how God created this vampire, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I think this was an early model. It it definitely feels like a lot of blood would like dribble down the side of your mouth as you're, yeah. you know, as you're trying to. Drink, as we all know, it's harder person. to suck through your molars than it is through your front <laughs> mm-hmm. teeth. No, That's that true. is true. That is very true. My grandmother used to say that all the time, and <laughs> mm-hmm. this is true now. It must it be a regional then. thing because mine did too. What about the costume the vampire is wearing? Mm. Uh, early on in the film, um, uh, one of the characters that we run into mentions that the uh, the Nightflyer must be a film fan. Do we think that this is the case? That that explains the costume as well as the name? I mean, he's not. I don't think he's dressing like this because he thinks it's a good look. Again, this goes into the into the the wanting to be caught vibe. Like he's dressing like a vampire from a movie. Yes. And um, so he must be watching movies and and wanting to, again, wanting to be seen. Again, the guy's got a face that's not particularly pleasant to look at if he feels like turning into the monster. So I'm not sure there's anything scary about having a, a, a very well-starched collar. Where is he watching <laughs> movies? Because well, you know he's he's, he's got to be doing something after he lands, and then he he eats. Yeah, the, staying indoors. The people, all day, he eats the people vampire. at the thing. No, but he eats the pe- he eats the people when he lands, and then he's got a whole night to kill because he's not sleeping at night. So he's going and watching late movies. He's going to the theater watching the midnight shows. Can you in, the, in can these small you towns watch movies during the day as a vampire if you're inside and if you bring if you were to the theater in there. I think so. Yeah. You could be teleported. You're talking about a teleporting vampire. This is a different kind Hmm. of vampire. No, you can go into the movie theater before dawn. Right. And you hang out. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, you know, it's like when you, when you camped out at at Walmart, Scott. Sure. What were you waiting for at Walmart? Nothing. I used to have, I had an, I had (laughs) another, no, I had another (laughs) podcast, uh, that didn't last very long. Um, frankly, we needed a budget to make that show work as well as it should have. But it was me and a co-host, and she and I would do exceptionally stupid things and then talk about them on the air about our experiences. It's called Trying Times. And one time, we attempted to stay 24 hours in a Walmart, and uh, we did not make it. We put up a I'm valiant sorry. fight, but eventually... You got kicked out, right? Yeah. Not quite, but we were at any minute 
gonna get kicked out it seemed like we were we were found sleeping in the garden center on a table <laughs> what we woke up to was someone like bolting out of the room <laughs> you know <laughs> and this this particular walmart we had foolishly chosen was across the street from a police station and <laughs> at that point in the day our brains were so fried from having been in walmart for like 17 hours at that point i think it was like a flight or fight instinct kicked in we were like we gotta get out of here and uh yeah yeah we we came back to my place and watched like ghost rider 2 and fell asleep on the couch <laughs> i was fucked up for like three four days after that nothing felt real it was one of my stupider stunts all things considered <laughs> it sounds really fun just to say it it, it sounds we had, fun it's a good story we, well we made our own fun um throughout you know we uh raced the carts around the interior of the store we uh hid googly eyes all over everything um we uh read aloud from some erotic novels in the book section you know a lot of carrying on taking place and just general mm. buffoonery um clownsmanship clownsmanship but eventually <laughs> the uh well, we had an appreciation for pageantry you must understand and um, eventually it just seemed like, I mean, being under those lights will really fuck with you and being like in the same, I forget at one point we mapped out exactly what the distance was around the interior of the store. And like, it was surreal. It was really fucking surreal, but it did a real number on my brain. Both of us were really fucked up after that. Like it took, it took some days to get back to normal. Don't recommend yeah. that experience at all. <laughs> Okay, uh, you've talked me out of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't do it. Was it. You're not gonna, you're not gonna like that. <sighs> um, I think that as we wrap up this conversation, I want to bring up something I mentioned kind of early on in this, in that I am shocked that this hasn't been remade because it's such a great premise. Mm-hmm. Um, and it could be modernized, and it, uh, I think that it, especially with King kind of back on top again, I, I feel like it's a no brainer. So I was trying to think of who I would cast in this. And of course, my immediate thought for anything uh, that is a character that I think is got, uh, I don't know, some grit and some fun to them. I like, I think Walton Goggins and I'm like, of course, Walton Goggins would, would kill as Richard Oh, yeah. oh my God. But, yeah, he would. But I was thinking like, what's the triple A version of this? Like, what's the, the one where they end up making this for like 80 million bucks and it's like a giant movie version. And I, in my mind, I was thinking Robert Downey Jr. would absolutely kill this this role if you want to go mm. for like the triple A star, because um, he could he could uh, absolutely play the the smarmy asshole um, uh, tabloid reporter super well. The first place my mind went to was Gyllenhaal and Nightcrawler. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, he can't do that. He's pretty much played this that that character. Right. Fred Malamed. <laughs> Just well, imagine you know, it, because you know. I'm, just, I'm just saying it because Cy I think Abelman this is a, squad. It's actually. a Cy Abelman. It's an opportunity. I haven't seen him like this before, <laughs> and I think right. it's. I think Hollywood owes him this. I would like, but could he play it as Cy Abelman playing Richard Dees? I don't think there's any way around that. If I'm being honest, <laughs> and 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 you know that's the thing. There's a you know, there's a as a as as a Jewish person myself, there's a quality mm-hmm. that I think would be would be beneficial. Like the you know Miguel Frere's version 
is, has no no sense of self doubt. He's confident, but I think that right. Fred would bring a sense of a constant: what the fuck am I doing? Yes, where am I going? Should I be here? Um, mm-hmm. Why is this man flying a plane when he can fly without one? And that kind of inner <laughs> monologue, I think, would would really build it out, really make us feel differently. And then there'd be some kind of guilt towards throwing your coworker in a closet and locking them there. Mm. I think that's I think that's the thing is that I think that you you can't out Miguel Ferrer Miguel Ferrer. So you got to just go the opposite direction. Hmm. Hmm. I'm going to choose to agree with Bespy that Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> is probably the better choice there. Although I would like to see Cy, Cy Abelman. Uh, he could be the vampire. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Paul Shear. Um, <laughs> everyone, you know, everyone laughs, but they said, you know, until everyone saw um, uh, nobody, no one realized uh, how hmm. badass. Uh, some of these uh, people right. who are generally Odenkirk funny would can be, be a great, would oh, be a great yeah. Richard Gere too, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. And I think that we're just we 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 pigeonhole people. That's I mean, true. <laughs> yeah, Robert Downey Jr. He could, he's already done this kind of thing. Why don't you give someone else a chance? Well, he's asking <laughs> for the AAA version, like the movie that gets made at the highest budget possible. And that's like the, and that's what we yeah. should, but that's what we should be working to tear down. <laughs> the idea right. that you wouldn't watch a Fred Melamed $80 million version of this movie, that's what we need to teach the studios. And that's on us to create the demand. Right. You know, you guys have a platform here. That's true. You know, and I, you, you shouldn't pave to How the corporate. <laughs> you, you, have, you have connections at Netflix. Well, the three of us, Monday morning, yeah. we're marching on the headquarters. We're pitching this bad boy and it's going to get made. How about that? Yeah, we're going to march with my connections. We can march right up to that gate and request <laughs> parking very politely. And you know what? Maybe we're going to get it, folks. <laughs> well, we both status, know Ted baby. Yeah, it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Richard Kind, second choice. Oh, Richard. Oh, just take the entire serious man cast and just <laughs> supplant them into this. Holy shit! Can In fact, let's imagine? get the Cohen brothers back for this. <laughs> oh my God, the, the the rabbi in the opening scene as the night flyer. Oh man, we've we cracked, cracked the code it. on this one. We oh, did yeah. it. I have goosebumps. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even kidding. You should see it. I look like a brined <laughs> turkey right now. That's how excited I am about a serious man. <laughs> the night flyer (laughs) we're gonna need to see fan art for this one folks listeners if you are talented with photoshop we would like to see pictures uh, (laughs) of potential posters for um a serious man to the night flyer oh my god (laughs) tag us all on twitter thank you finally something good good came from this I'm so sorry. No, no, no. This is great. Um, what are you? Uh, what are you working on next? Where can people find you? What do you want to promote? What's going on? Okay, I'll make it real quick. Well, uh, obviously, you mentioned "Lovely Dark and Deep." Uh, that was written mm-hmm. and directed by Teresa Sutherland. That we shot this summer in Portugal, and she is um, she's amazing. She's totally 
uh, an amazing artist. And we're really, you know, my, my fiance, uh, Molly Quinn and Matthew Welty and I, uh, mm-hmm. we met, I, we actually met Teresa in the midnight mass room and, um, she showed me the script and I'm really excited for people to see it because she, what's it about? Is, it is about a young woman, uh, who is looking to uncover a, a mystery from her past that relates to disappearances in uh, America's national parks, slightly based on a true story, mostly based on the kind of Teresa's terrifying vision of the world, which is something that, again, like I was out in the woods with them, watching them uh, film this thing and helping as I could. And I was terrified the whole time in real life. I just, it's, <laughs> everything scares me. And it's just the worst fucking job possible. But the movie is really, really fun. Um, we're excited to bring that out later this year. And then, of course, uh, dovetailing that beautifully, the second season of F-Boy Island uh, yes. on HBO Max will be uh, premiering this summer. Um, Highly anticipated. And, and, of course, I have like three or four other really exciting shows. But my, the problem with my job is that people like they, – they don't want to know about them until like a week before. So it's going to be a busy summer for us. We have like mm-hmm. probably three or four or five shows coming out. Um and I'm really excited about all of them, but F Boy is going to be uh, probably first to market. And I love F Boy Island because it's its own kind of horror movie. You're going to collaborate with uh, Flanagan again? Uh, I was lucky enough to uh, be one of the writers on his upcoming show, Midnight Club. Um, oh, right on. So uh, I got to kind of uh, try out those chops and read a tremendous, uh, tremendous amount of uh, Christopher Pike stuff. And when is that? When is that coming out? You know, I do not know. Uh, I have not been given uh, the information. Sometime this year, I think is. I, I keep is forgetting that one's now. waiting in the wings. I saw a, like a a, twi- a tweet from Netflix that said it was coming out this year. Um, oh, but so not vague, not a vague tweet. No, yeah, but it's specific very, and good one. Um, that was really one of the kind of, mo- <laughs> if I'm being honest, the kind of the most exciting experiences of my life and i can't wait to see how it all goes because it's a Sweet. it's a you know again it's another mic masterpiece very exciting lovely yeah. and i hope well, to thank be, you i hope to be back with you guys maybe you know every week just talking mm-hmm. slowly we'll do the night flyer every week until people finally stop listening yes that's yeah. what we'll do when we're ready when we're ready to kill the show we're just gonna have you it's <laughs> It's just going to be the night flyer every week with Elon. Think of me as the guy who will be here to help you kill your show. I'm available. (laughs) Do you think it would kill the show entirely if we did that for like a month? Like how angry do you think people would get? (sighs) People would get angry and then they would would get into it and get into the joke. And then they would get real angry when they see that it's not a joke. I think you can get a solid. You get sixteen weeks out of it before, because <laughs> right. at, at week four it's like okay we get it, and then at week eight it becomes like guys you have to listen to this show. They've lost the fucking thread, man. They're just <laughs> doing the night flyer lines. over and over again. They had this conversation about the vampire pee last week. They're doing it again as if they didn't do it. You have to listen, and then every then know, it had just, a, a giant bump. And then death, then then swift death. I just remembered. I know the answer to this question because we did exactly this sort of thing when when a BMD was in operation, and we um, there was a movie that uh, we found out about kind of by accident called The Evil Within. 
Uh-huh. And um, I won't go through the whole thing, but go look up The Evil Within. Look at the production history on that movie and, and tell me you wouldn't be excited to see it. So when this happened, like there were a bunch of us like on Slack, like everyone volunteering to be the one to review it, basically. And that quickly snowballed to what if we all reviewed it? And then that quickly snowballed to what if every day we ran a, a review of The Evil Within and just never mentioned it? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it went through this exact cycle that Vespi just mentioned. Like people were like fine with it at first. And then it was like, how many, how many reviews of this movie are you guys going to run? And then like a day later, it was like, this site has really gone downhill. And I don't understand what's happening. <laughs> the next day it was like, people started taking hostages by the fifth day, you know, there were like riots in the streets. And um, we actually cut it off like a day early because people were so, mad and the fact that we refused to address it made them seem to make them only angrier so yeah i guess i know exactly how that shit would turn out <laughs> so well, it sounds like we're keeping our back thing. pocket yeah. yeah 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 we we're definitely going to hold on to that one but intend yeah. until then we will find another reason to get you back one day this was this was wonderful uh and thank you so much for being here thank you guys for taking the time it's a it's one of the honors of my life you said that very somberly, so I, I, I'm incredibly. Yes. I'm sad that it's ending. Yes. Well, <laughs> no. we can always listen back to it whenever we'd like to relive the magic of these moments. Many thanks to Alon Gale for coming in and finally giving us an excuse to talk about Nightflyer on the main feed. This mm-hmm. is a title that is quickly become near and dear to the hearts of Mr. Wampler and myself. And the more we watch it, the more we love it. And you can never have too much Miguel Ferrer. Uh, Do you appreciation. Think, I was thinking about this earlier today. Do you think it might be overstating things to say that what we are to King in the printed world with revival mm-hmm. is as such as we are to King in the cinematic world as the night flyer? Mm, we're getting there. We're very closely getting there. Um, I muted I think... a guy on our feed once for talking shit about the Night Flyer. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't like the cut of his jib. Didn't like the attitude. It was just like, mm. like there's a way to like, you know, debate it in a friendly way. But if you're sure. just coming out like you fucking idiots, like I'm done. I'm done with you. Right. You know? Yeah. And also you're wrong and show some fucking respect to Miguel Ferrer. Thank you. <laughs> For sure. I mean, there's definitely a, an argument you can make about Nightflyer being a product of its time, but sure. I don't know. It's still so ridiculously over the top and seedy, and it, it's a great little bizarre, not very Stephen King, but not right. Stephen Kingy in a weird way. It's it's it kind of this it, complex of yeah. It gets better every time, though, too, right? It does. Yeah, you kind of forgive the late 90s shoulder pads and uh-huh. <laughs> and some yeah, of the yeah, weird yeah. like direct to cable looking transitions that they make but uh the gore effects hold up miguel ferrer is a force of nature um yeah and and it's just mean that whole damn thing is so mean and like, yeah <laughs> yeah yeah we, so, how we can gra- you not like it we're, we're gravitating towards the most mean-spirited Stephen <laughs> King shit. But, like, I do think that by the time the show wraps, we're going to be the two biggest Nightflyer fans in the world. I think we can uh, guarantee that now. Yep, um, for sure. There may be people out there listening right now who think they are bigger Nightflyer fans. And I just want to say, uh, first of all, you're clowns. <laughs> Second of all, tag us on Twitter. Prove it. Let's see the evidence of your Nightflyer uh fandom ship that's not a word but 
we're going to use it right here. Yeah. Yeah. And, bring it. Let's and, see. And you very well might be, but we're coming for that crown, baby. So. Mm-hmm. Right. Here's I will, your I will warning. Be, I will be swaddled in Nightflyer robes <laughs> by the time this is done. I'm going to have a giant Miguel Ferrer cape by the time this is over with. Yes. We're going to walk out like a fucking in earthquake velvet. and shit from the 80s <laughs> just in our our little our little speedos and guts hanging over the the ends demanding justice for miguel mm-hmm. ferrer yeah that's how i'm gonna start my cult it's gonna <laughs> be me up. looking like lord humongous from <laughs> from road warrior only i'm wearing a cape with miguel ferrer's face on it yeah <laughs> So what do we got in the pipeline next week? uh, Why don't I start? We'll do that. I'll start next week and say that we are tackling a short story next week, which is interesting. And and one that hasn't been uh, adapted beyond dollar baby status uh, at that. The short story we are tackling is called the man in the black suit. Yes. Uh, And uh, yeah, I don't, this is really exciting. This is, this we, as we kind of determine in this episode, it's uh this is about the the time when Stephen King started to become taken seriously by the critical establishment. This was published originally in the early nineties and it like won a billion literary awards. And, uh, but it's not a story that is often discussed when bringing up like the, the classic King short stories. So, yes. So we, it's a, it's a very long episode for a very short story. So, uh, there's lots to uh, chew on with this one. And, yeah. uh, the story's like 25 minutes long. You right. can find it with a Google search, you know, and I think we went 90 full minutes on this one. Oh yeah. If, if not more. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a good one. And, and it's, it's one of our more scholarly episodes, but it's also got a whole lot of personality. Thanks to our guest who is a very respected uh journalist film journalist and not the first time he has been uh on the show i can say that but it'll be his first mm-hmm. time in the main feed mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you can deduce from there but yeah uh, he has uh, worked for uh, a big publication he does and he's he's got uh, a connection with king himself and uh yeah lots of great stories yeah and, as and, he reminded us i'm gonna break his balls about this a little bit more oh yeah yeah uh <laughs> I won't tell the story again, but this will be relevant on next week's show. But uh, uh, yeah, he has interviewed Stephen King uh, upwards of 20 times. I I just want to say that. And uh, so all of you respect our guest next week with the same amount of respect that we brought to the table. (laughs) Having only interviewed King on this show once. (laughs) Right. Yeah, he he was definitely like, oh, you guys, it's so cute. (laughs) Yeah. No. Well, here's what I did. (laughs) Uh, No, he's great. He's a very humble guy, very smart, smart dude. Uh, We break each other's balls a bit. And uh, it's a a very fun episode. It's that kind of classic King cast mix you come to love and expect with each show where it's a little bit of insight and and a little bit of fun. So Mm -hmm. and a lot of rambling, you know, that that's our that's our recipe. Well, I I, the only thing I want to say in prep for this this episode is that it gets uh, it goes deep into religion and politics. So we we've got um, we got a double header headed your way next week. So five star reviews, baby. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Preempt those one star uh, angry Trumper religious fundamentalist uh, reviews now. You can yes. you can get a jump on that by going to Apple Podcast or Spotify and giving us them five stars right now. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, so what's on our Patreon on Friday? Speaking of, of uh, uh, getting <laughs> deep into religion, yeah, speaking uh, of, yeah, there's a connection there. Which, we're talking about revival again over on the, the Patreon this weekend. Uh, we, we've had a, a, a new influx of listeners over the past month. Um, I'm guessing it's because of the Belay brothers. I don't know who else we had on the show mm, right. in, in the, the, the past month, but big new wave of people who are are waking up to the fact that we are giant supporters of Revival here at this show. Someone came to us uh, by the name of Brian Foster. You may know him from his work with uh, Critical Role or Tox Machina or Between the Sheets or Undeadwood or a million other things. He is a longtime listener of the show, came to me with an idea about his interpretation of uh, Revival having worked on the um how do i put this like the fundamentalist carney circuit Wait, would that be around about right in vegas yeah he like kind of worked yeah he he has he was like on the ground floor he, he, yeah yeah yes. he grew he grew up uh in a very very religious household and was deep within the church <laughs> and kind of witnessed the grift firsthand and it like <laughs> and it uh kind of you know broke him from from religion and you know, the, I, that's a very familiar story but he's got a, a unique angle kind of seeing that that side of the revival uh tent process mm-hmm. and and uh so that that was the angle into this and it ended up just being a great excuse for us to kind of sink our teeth into the meat of this really great king story yes so no matter what you're getting a, a lengthy episode wherein we you know discuss revival again uh, and also this time we, we have some unique input into the situation. It's a uh, it's a great one. And all of you who are just now coming to a revival or just finished it or whatever the case may be, have been asking for more revival episodes. Here you go on the Patreon <laughs> this Friday. Yep. In order to uh, listen to it, all you got to do is sign up over at patreon.com backslash the Kingcast. And you will not only get this revival episode, you'll get almost two full years worth of uh, back episodes that are exclusive to the Patreon. I'd say even with us doling out the occasional treat of uh, the Patreon apps into the main feed, like we did on April 1st, you're still like 95% of everything we've ever recorded for the Patreon is only available there. There's at least 90 episodes on there that haven't seen the light of day in the main feed for sure. Yep. So if you've uh, burned through all the the main feed episodes, then and you got nowhere else to go, and you're feeling that lonely depression kind of sinking mm-hmm. in that there's no new Kingcast, claim. Yeah. Then yeah, we got you covered over at the Patreon, babies. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So yeah. So like next week we will be talking about the man in the black suit with our mystery guest, and uh, that'll be next Wednesday, and then on Friday. This Friday, we will have our talk about revival with Mr. Brian Foster. Adios, folks. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director. And editing is done by yours truly. <laughs> <laughs>